We've been studying this letter uh, by the aged Apostle John who walked and talked with Jesus, who saw Jesus Christ uh, crucified on the cross, but then on that Easter Sunday saw him uh, raised from the dead. And he's writing this letter uh, that we find uh, in the New Testament, at the end of the New Testament, uh, in these five chapters. Uh, He's writing to the city of Ephesus, to the church in Ephesus, and uh, we have learned throughout this series that we have so much to learn about what it means to live an authentic and vibrant faith in Jesus Christ. And so without any further ado, I'm going to ask that you would stand uh, for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to be looking at 1 John chapter 5, uh, verses 1 through 5. So let me read that and ask God's blessing, and let's get right into the Word. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God, to obey His commands. And His commands are not burdensome, for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Let's pray. Father God, once again we come to this letter and we open your word uh, to know what your good and pleasing will is. And Father, it is to know you, to be born of you, our text will tell us this morning. It is to love you and to love your children. It is to overcome the world. Lord, these are things that we need to hear. And Father, I pray that we would know that we can overcome because we already are overcomers. Lord, I'm reminded of the great truth of Romans chapter 8, that we are more than conquerors because of Christ Jesus and His blood that He shed on the cross, that which we have already signified in the taking of the bread and the cup this morning around your table. So Lord, enable us to be the conquerors, the victors, the overcomers that you've called us to be through the truth of your word and through the power of your spirit. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. As one views or looks through or observes the New Testament, uh, we find that there is not a singular title by which we call who we are or what we are. Of course, uh, probably most used is the term Christian. We are Christians. We are people who follow Christ. But the New Testament is full of Uh, of words or titles or names uh, that signify who we are. Uh, Writers of the New Testament call us children of God, friends of God. We are called sheep in God's flock. We're called saints. We're called chosen ones. We're called citizens of heaven, witnesses. We're called the elect, living stones, servants, followers of Christ, disciples of Christ, ambassadors for Christ. And I could go on because there's dozens of names and titles of that which we can call ourselves. I think the reason why there are so many isn't because uh, the group couldn't vote on a a particular one that they liked the best, but it was more that each of them signify who we are in relationship with our Lord and Savior in different ways. And each of those titles explain some of the job that we have in the world that we live in until the coming of Jesus Christ. And yet amidst all of those, our text gives us yet again another title that I love over all the other ones. It's a title that probably because of my love for sports, that I love this title so much. Because four times in our text today, John is going to use a Greek word, and it's the Greek word where we get uh, the title that we can call ourselves, and that is the title of overcomers. Four times in this text, he's going to tell us that we are overcomers, that we have overcome the world, that we have overcome uh, the power of sin and death, that we have overcome because we believe in the one, Jesus Christ, who is our Savior and our Lord. And that's something we don't talk about much as Christians. We don't talk about being overcomers. This word overcomers in the English is translated, when I'll get to it in a moment, to a Greek word that literally means victor, conqueror. It's the same word Paul uses when he says we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. We don't think about being victors and conquerors and even champions 
as believers many times. I think for the most part, it's because uh, for many of us, we're in the minority. Uh, We're the only Christian in our school. We're the only Christian in our workplace. We're the only Christian in our neighborhood or in our family. And so the last feeling we would have is that we're victors and champions. We find ourselves in the minority. And it seems that so many times we're not victorious, but because of our fight with sin, because we fall to sin, Because it seems like culture of the world seems to be winning the war, uh, that many times we feel more like losers than we do winners. You know, it's amazing we see this concept of calling ourselves champions and winners in the sports world. It's not uh, by any uh, stretch of the imagination that uh, every team desires to be victorious. And as I began to think about that, I began to think about the victorious songs that that teams like to have. If you look at uh, our Chicago teams, it doesn't uh, take us very long to know that every time each of our Chicago teams have a victory or score a goal or win the game, uh, we see that they have a song. We've been watching the Blackhawks, and I know some of you are getting nervous now, but uh, every time the Blackhawks score a goal, every time the Blackhawks uh, win a game, the crowd breaks out in a song, and uh, I've got the title. I didn't have the title before, but the title is the Chelsea Dagger Song. And, and if you don't know what that song is, it's the song that the United Center breaks out with, you know, where they go, do, 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 do. That's their victory chant. That's their song. And uh, they love singing it. Of course, uh, when the Bears score a touchdown in Soldier Field or, or wherever a Bears fan is, they'll break out in the theme song of the Bears, Bear Down, Chicago Bears. And the crowd will begin to sing out that their hearts the song of victory. Who can forget the great hymn uh, that we hear on the north side every time the Cubs win? That angelic song that goes out from the rafters of that enshrined arena called Wrigley Field when that glorious heavenly team, the Chicago Cubs, win, you hear, Go Cubs, Go! An anthem that should no doubt be sung in houses and in families all across the United States. And to, if I, I would be remiss if I did not bring up the other team, the minor league team on the south side. Uh, they have their own theme song, but they're smart. They're smart because they know their fans are fair weather. They know their fans are always ready to give up the fight. And their theme song is Don't Stop Believing." What a great song for a Sox fan. Pleading with their fans to not give up and to not quit rooting for their team. Amidst all of those great, uh, let me rephrase that, amidst all of the one not great song, all the other ones are great, uh, you have the greatest of all theme songs of victory. It's a 1977 song by the group Queen called We Are the Champions. I don't know if there is a championship that has taken place here in America by a sports team that that has not been the song that has been echoed out, that we are the champions of the world. What John is trying to tell us today is something that we understand as sports fans, but many times we don't understand as Christians. And that is the fact that if you are a child of God here this morning, if you are born of God, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, you are not a loser. You are not someone who is fighting a battle that you are unsure of the outcome, but stealing the words from Freddie Mercury, you are the champion of the world. This is what John is wanting to tell us. After four chapters of telling us that it is not going to be easy to live in the light, that it is going to be difficult at times to say no to sin and to stop falling prey to the things of the world, John comes in and he says, I want you to know the battle is already won. And you have found victory. And that victory is not found in who you are. That victory is not found in the things that you've done. But that victory is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Notice in our text, just very quickly, that in verse 1 and verse 5 of our text, the bookends of our faith tell us why we're champions. Because we believe that Jesus Christ, we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And in verse 5, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The reason why we are victorious, the reason why we are champions is because of Jesus Christ. He is the victor. He is the captain. He is the great conquering king. Uh, but how are we to see that lived out? How are we to uh, live out this idea of victory? 
It's by no surprise that John uses this word, uh, overcome, or to over, that you've overcome the evil one, you have overcome uh, the world. In fact, in the 28 uses of this word in the New Testament, John is the one who uses it 24 times. This is one of John's favorite words. It was a favorite word in Greek culture, which John was speaking to at that time, because the Greeks used this word. It was the Greek word nikau, and nikau was the name of the Greek goddess of victory. And Nikau was uh, the, the Greek goddess who helped Zeus in the battle against the Titans. And so the Greeks loved this word. They loved this idea of victory. And yet this word that was so predominant in Greek culture became a defining word for uh, uh, the Christians of the day. And yet I think it's amazing because that is true for the same word in the English language. Do you know what English word we get from the word nikau? Anybody have? We had two people in the first service that knew this. Anybody want to take a gander at it? Nike. The word Nike, the reason why the Nike company has it as their name is that is the Greek word for victory. And so what they want you to know is that when you wear Nike shoes, you're victorious. When you wear Nike apparel, you're wearing victorious apparel, the apparel of victors, conquerors, those who are overcomers. And and we get this idea that only Michael Jordan and and, and Tiger Woods and, and all of these people are the ones that can wear, and yet the ones that wear the greatest apparel, the greatest Nike apparel, are Christians. We're the ones that don't wear that apparel on the outside, but on the end. We are the overcomers. We are the ones who are victorious. Uh, This idea uh, of it is, is that there is nobody, there is nobody who stands in competition to what Christ has done in our lives. And so what does it involve? How do we see this victory in our lives? The answer is seen in four very quick things. I want to preface this because I made the first service uh, nervous. My first point's the longest. My second point is the second longest. My third point's the third longest. And the fourth point, very short. Okay? So we're going to go for a little while on point number one and two, and then we're going to finish up kind of in a a hurry uh, to work through this. And that's how I've intended for it to be done. The first way we see this victory, the first way that we see that we are the champions is through our regeneration. It is through our regeneration. Now, some of you may not understand what that word is. That's just a theological term, a a, a term that we understand from verse 1. Notice what verse 1 says. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Uh, That is the theological phrase there of being regenerated. It's the idea of uh, one who is now uh, a Christian, one who becomes reborn in Christ Jesus. They've been born again. Now, we need to understand a couple things about this. John says it twice in verse 1, and in verse 4, he says, For everyone born of God overcomes the world. What does this mean to be born of God? Well, we know that John speaks about this when he writes in his gospel about the conversation that Jesus has with a very famous teacher of the day named Nicodemus. And the subject of regeneration, the subject of being born again, comes out in that text. In John chapter 3, uh, verses, uh, th- verse 3, Jesus tells Nicodemus, who was a religious and a moral man, that truly, truly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. In verse 7, he says it again. He says, you must be born again. What does this mean? What it means is that you can go to church all your life. You can be religious. You can be moral. You can give all your money to the poor. You can do good deed after good deed, but that will not get you into heaven. That if you want to see heaven at the end of your life, it means that every man, every woman, and every child must be born of God. What John is saying here is that we must understand that we have to be born of God. We have to be born of God. Now, this involves a couple things. First of all, it involves something that only God can do. Write that in your outlines. Regeneration is something only God can do. Now, we need to understand something about this idea of regeneration. Regeneration or the new birth, being born of God, is totally a work of God. 
You and I cannot play an active role in this at all. And the reason why is because Scripture tells us you and I are spiritually dead. What that means is that there is nothing in, in, in us or of us uh, that will ever produce uh, the rebirth process on our own. Now, many mistakenly think that regeneration is a matter of free will or choice. Now, no, there's no question that at some point in our lives we must choose Christ and trust Christ as our Savior. John 1.12 says, For as many as receive Him, to them He give the right to become children of God. But we must understand that that, be, that thought doesn't come from us, but from God. Because that next verse, John 1.13, tells us that those uh, who, are, uh, who are received as the family of God, as sons and daughters of God, were not born of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, John says, nor of the will of a man, but of God. It is God who begins this work. It is God who sees this work through. Just as none of us had any say in where we were going to be born, what family we were going to be born in, whether we would be male or female, or the location or timing of our birth, it is true spiritually that that comes from God and God alone. What I'm saying is, is it is entirely the work of God according to His sovereign plan that we be regenerated. It's God who sees this through. The Bible teaches this over and over again, that the new birth is essential, and for us to be reborn, we must have God at the driver's seat seeing this through. It begins and it ends with God. Number two, it involves life after death. The reason why we must hold to this idea that it begins and ends with God is, as I said, we are spiritually dead. You can dress up a corpse in the finest of clothes, you can put perfume on them, you can do their hair, but at the end of the day, they're still dead. Uh, we, as believe, or we as unbelievers uh, don't need reformation, we don't need uh, a change of clothing or a change of atmosphere, we need life to be breathed into us and to change our deadness and to bring us back to life. Ephesians 2, verse 1, Paul says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. There's no way we can get around it. All of us uh, are dead uh, before we are reborn. And so spiritually, we have to understand that there's nothing that you can do that will bring you back to life. We can't attain this new life by our own efforts. It's not a matter of trying harder. It's not a matter of trying to clean up bad habits. It's not a matter of trying to have New Year's resolutions that say, I will do better this year compared to last year. But that it is rather the initiative and the power that lies within God himself that enables us to see the kingdom of God. He is the one who breathes new life into us. I love what John tells us of Jesus' words in John five twenty-one. He says the following, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom He wishes. This was true of Jesus and His miracles of raising the physical dead, and it's true of Him also with the spiritual dead. The Lord gives His life, lays His life down for those And then he breathes into them new life and imparts to them the life that now they can then live by the Spirit. The Apostle Peter talks about this in Peter, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy, listen to what Peter says, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused this. He has allowed this and moved for this to happen in our lives. Paul reiterates this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love for us, which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ, for it is by grace you have been saved. God is the one that opens our eyes. God is the one that opens our heart. That is why we bow the knee and pray for our lost loved ones and family. And what do we pray? God, open their hearts, open their eyes, because we recognize that apart from the work of God in their lives, they will never see the kingdom of God. And so we have to understand this is what happens, is it's being born again. It is life after our spiritual death. Notice the next thing that we see. It's a new disposition. 
There's a new disposition. What does uh, this uh, new birth look like? Uh, many of you know I, I uh, run a catering business uh, throughout the week, and uh, one of the, the great things you get to be a part of is you're a part of some pretty cool uh, picnics and events, and uh, our company has catered for years at the Loyola Medical Center. I think it's for the last 20 or 22 years uh, we've been catering for Loyola Medical Center, and they have a heart transplant picnic. And the picnic is an amazing thing because it is for all the individuals who have had heart transplants. What that means is their heart was taken out of their chest cavity and a new heart was put in. And Loyola Medical Center was, one, I believe, one of the first hospitals to successfully do that. And it's amazing to see that it says, I got my new heart, and then it puts the date down. And so you see things as, as early as just, you know, maybe six or eight weeks ago, uh, you see people walking around maybe a, mi- a bit slower than they normally would. But then you've got people 20 years, they've had a new heart put in them. The best way to explain regeneration is that. It's a heart transplant. God speaks about this when he speaks to his people in the book of Ezekiel chapter 11. I'll read this for you. Ezekiel chapter 11 verses 19 and 20 speaks to this heart transplant that has taken place in the, in the, in the child of God. He says this, I will give them an undivided heart and I will put a new spirit in them. How will you do that, God? He goes on and says, I will remove from them their heart of stone... And give them a heart of flesh. As a result of taking out that heart of stone, he's going to tell us, and putting in this new heart of flesh, what then happens, God says, is the following. Then they will follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. They will be my people and I will be their God. Being born again It's where God takes out our heart of sin and replaces it with a heart that has within it, residing in it, the Holy Spirit. It is then that we're able to see that which we need to know and understand about God, the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. It's this new disposition that allows us then to have an ongoing faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to understand this. Now, this is something that many people get uh, mixed up in their minds. The idea that uh, regeneration uh, that precedes saving faith is something we just don't understand in our human thinking. Because we have this thought, how can God call upon people to believe in Christ as their Savior if they cannot believe? And the answer is, is that means God must make us alive. He must allow us to have spiritual eyes and a spiritual heart to be able to hear and know what the gospel has to say. You say, well, how can that happen? Well, what I'm telling you is, is that faith uh, is the means of regeneration. I'm sorry, faith is not the means of regeneration. Rather, it is the result. It's the result. And what I mean by that, the best way to explain that is in John chapter 11. Jesus comes to the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And when he comes to his uh, friend's tomb, uh, Lazarus has been dead for days, correct? He's been dead for days. He's been in that tomb. And Jesus comes, and he begins a conversation with a dead man. And the conversation is very simple. He says, Lazarus, come forth. It's a command. Now, what then happens We have God bringing life, Jesus Christ bringing life through his words to Lazarus by his power of being God. He raises Lazarus from the dead. The resulting action is that which then Lazarus is a part of. Because then Lazarus is obedient to the command that Jesus Christ has given And so what we need to understand in our fallen state, we cannot see God. The Bible says no one in their fallen state, Romans chapter 1, that we will seek God. I'm sorry, Romans chapter 3, I think it's verse 10 says, no one seeks God. And so we have to have a new heart put in us to be able to see God, and the result of that is faith. It's the gift that God has given. We quote Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. Now, many of us have always thought uh, that the gift of God is salvation. But listen to the words again. For by grace you are saved through faith. And this, what is the this? It's faith. 
This faith is not something you have. You say, well, how do you, how do you know that, Tim? Well, I did listen enough in English class that when you have a word like this, it's always pointing back to uh, a certain thing, and you have to go by the rule, and I know I'm impressing some of you, the rule of the closest antecedent. Remember that? I know we're in summer school now, but and this is not of ourselves. Faith is not of ourselves, but what is faith? It is the gift of God. So you can't say, look how great I am. I have faith in God. God gave you that gift, and you now exercise that gift by being obedient. This is of great importance. It's a new disposition. Follow me. Again, there's a new devotion. Not only does it involve a new disposition, but there's a new devotion. And the idea here is that we are going to live differently. Faith in Jesus Christ that has been given to us by God himself is going to be fleshed out in many ways. Write down this passage, Romans chapter 12. When you get a chance sometime, walk through Romans chapter 12 and ask questions. Am I being transformed by the renewing of my mind? Am I offering my body as a living sacrifice? Am I loving? Am I being patient? Am I practicing hospitality? Am I using my gifts? 21 verses of just a litany of ways that faith is lived out in the life of the believer. As a believer, we will not be perfect But there should be a deep desire. There should be a devotion that says, God, I want to do what you have commanded me to. As a child who's been born again, I am far from perfect. I fail. I fall to sin all the time. But I can assure you, one of the ways that I know I am born of God is that there is a unique feeling and a sense and a unique devotion to pursue the things of God. That doesn't come from me. That doesn't come from the fallen nature of Tim Bedall. It can only come from God. Finally, write this down. It's not in your outlines, but there's also a new destination. I thought about that as I was finishing up my message. There's a new destination. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whosoever believes in Him, there are two destinations, shall not perish, but have everlasting life. All that are born again will not perish. Of course, perishing means an eternity in hell. But if we trust Christ as our Savior by faith, if we believe that Jesus Christ is who He says He is and has done what He says He has done, we will not perish but have everlasting life. It's something God only does. It involves life after death. It involves this new disposition. It involves this new devotion to do the things that God has called us to. And because of that in the future, it will involve a new destination. That is our regeneration. That is the only reason why we can say we are victorious. Now let's move to point number two. Because it involves our relationships. Notice what the text says in 1 John 5, 1 and 2. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. He's regenerated. And everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. Now, we've spent a lot of time over these weeks talking about loving God and loving one another. And so I'm not going to spend a lot of time in regards to that, except to say the following. I want you to throw up the two bullet points there. We have two relationships that we should be involved in, loving our Father in heaven and loving the faithful. What he is articulating, John is articulating, is this idea. You, as you love the Father, you will inevitably love the faithful. As you love the faithful, you will inevitably love the Father. And it's this circular thing that it will never stop. It's this ongoing thing. As you love God, you'll love God's people. As you love God's people, you will love God. It's this idea that it's never-ending. Now, he articulates a couple things that we need to understand about that. The first thing that he wants us to understand is you cannot break this rule. This rule, this command, is something that you can't say, I have one, but I won't have the other. Meaning, I love God, but I can take or leave Christians. I love God, but who needs the church? I mean, have you been around the church? Augustine, the great uh, church father, said that uh, uh, the church uh, was a whore, but it was also his mother. I like that because we many times show ourselves off to be this terrible sinner, this one who is in adulterous relationships all the time, but we must never forget we are connected to her. We're family. 
And there's this idea, especially within evangelicalism, that people think they can have Christ without the church. Some, even from our own midst, have, have left. And, and in our conversations, I've had conversations with people, I know the elders have as well, and we say, okay, it's all right. We understand that village it may not work for everybody, and you may be looking for other things, but what you will hear from us, inevitably, anytime anybody says that they may be looking for another church, is we say, how can we help you? How can we help you find a church? Because we don't want you just sitting by yourself. And, and, and not too long ago, a conversation with someone who had left the church, I saw them at, a, at an event outside of the church. I said, well, where are you worshiping? And they said, we're just at home doing church as a family. I said, no. It's all right that you're not a village. It's okay. We're still a part of the family of God. We don't have to be in one locale to do that. But don't think you can substitute. And I says, well, what are your thoughts? He said, you know, the church, and it's not about just village, but just, you know, the church is full of bureaucracy and full of this and that. And, I, and at the end, I said, but wait a minute. But Christ commands it. What, G, what John is trying to tell us is the following, and I'll put it in my terms. And I'll assure you of this. You can love me, and we can have intimacy until I find out that you hate my wife and my children. As soon as I find out that you are not fans of my kids, I mean, I really like Tim. He's a wonderful guy, but man, those children, I can't stand them. Or, it may be easier, I don't, I don't want to say that Amanda would say this, Amanda may not, but, but I know for me, if you were to say, man, Tim, he's a great storyteller, man, I enjoy being around him, but Amanda, man, I know it's the other way around, but for the point of illustration, let's go this way. You know, I, I really don't like Amanda. You know, I, I just, there's nothing to talk with her about or anything. I'm going to tell you something. We're not going to be very close. There isn't going to be intimacy. And the reason why is you can't love part of me. And I got to tell you something, my family comes with me. We're connected. There's no uh, separating that. Understand this. You can't separate Christians from Christ. And I understand they're tough to live with. I understand they're going to make your life miserable at times. But if you think you can separate one from the other, John says, it's not the case. Christians come with Christ. And Christ with Christians. This inevitably is going to impact our Father as well as our relationship with the faithful. But notice what he goes on to say. He says that as we love God and as we love others, we're going to have a way to guide us in two other relationships, and that is the world and the Word. Let's start with the Word first. As we love Christ, as we pursue Christ, the Bible says the following. Look at what it says in verse uh, 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love the children of God. Notice what he says, by loving God, so we know that we love our brothers and sisters in Christ by loving God, meaning because it's this ongoing thing that is happening. As we love God, we love his children. As we love his children, we love God. And then he goes on and he says, and carrying out his commands. So how do we love God? We love God by obeying his commands. And so we need to understand that as we love God, we're going to obey His commands. As we obey God's commands, we love God. Now, I know that seems like a circular argument, but I know it to be completely true in my life. Because I see that when I ask my children to do something, and when they obey me, I feel more love than I do many times when I know they just kind of pass on by and say, I love you, Dad, and run off to their friend's house. Because they're listening to what I'm saying. Because the reason why they're obeying is they respect and they want to honor their father. They want to do what is right. And so in doing what is right, following their father's commands, they prove their love for their father. That is true for us as believers. Some of us say we have this intimate and vibrant walk with Jesus. And we have this incredible relationship with the word and what John says over and over again is don't just talk about it, but show us in the way of obedience. How do you obey the Word, especially when nobody is looking? Here's the amazing thought that he brings up, something that we need to understand. He says that God's commands aren't burdensome. We don't think about that very often. We think about the Christian life and we say, what a burden. 
I don't get to do this. I don't get to do that. My four-year-old son, we're, we're heading out uh, tonight, or this afternoon right after church uh, to go down to St. Louis. I'm speaking uh, for a family conference down in, in uh, St. Louis, and uh, my kids are just looking forward to it. And uh, my four-year-old gets up today and says, Dad, can't we just skip church and go, go to St. Louis? I said, no, we have to do that. And he says, Dad, don't you know how hard it is to go to church? And I said, I understand, son, but this is what God's commanded us to do. Sometimes we're like my four-year-old. It's hard to obey God. You know, we've got young people that are saying, you know, everybody else is messing around in their relationships. I want to do those things. And these are burdensome. Why, God, why would you have these things? And we forget that God's commands aren't burdensome. Well, what does that mean? Number one, I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that following God is going to be easy. This is not what John is saying. John isn't saying, oh, following God is this great thing. Remember, this is a guy that is persecuted and tortured for his faith. It wasn't easy, but what it means is the following. I want you to write these down somewhere. The reason why God's commands aren't burdensome is because, first of all, we have a new nature We have a new nature that enables us to obey His commands. Aren't you glad that nowhere in the Scripture does it say that to obey God, it means that you have to be able to run on foot 50 miles per hour? Todd, you might get away with that. You could maybe run that fast. I know that this body has not been purposed to move that quickly. Okay? I I know that. I'm glad that God didn't say, I need you to jump 10 feet into the air. I can't do that. And and how sad would it be if we dedicated our life to trying to run and do the impossible, running 50 miles an hour, or training and and working our tail off to be able to jump 10 feet in the air, something that we are incapable of doing. Well, I will tell you something. There is nothing in Scripture that God has commanded us to do that by His Spirit we can't do. And that's why they're not burdensome. The other reason why it's not burdensome within that idea is because Jesus has already done it. He's proven that it can be done. And he didn't do it sitting up in heaven. He did it down here on earth being involved in every type of activity that we've been a part of and yet to live life without sin. This is why it's not burdensome. Number two, these commands are easy because they come from God, not man. It is always so much easier to listen to God's commands than it is man's commands. I know it's not the same thing, but in my workplace uh, at 5Bs, uh, I am able to uh, very quickly get my employees to do things. I'm the boss. They're the employees. I say, guys, we need to get these things done. And because of my position and their position, uh, it's agreed upon. You do what I say, and, and, and things get done. Well, the other week, I had some meetings here at church, and uh, the first guy that came into work uh, got the job of getting the list of things that needed to be done that day and the assignment for who was supposed to do those jobs. Now, I didn't give it to him because he's the assistant manager or he's an up-and-comer or anything. He was the first guy in, and I needed to get to a meeting. So I hand him this with my own writing. We had seven or eight people at the office that day, and within that first meeting I was a part of, my phone is vibrating off the hook, and I'm getting text messages saying, who does he think he is to tell me what to do? And I said, wait a minute, it's me telling you what to do. Here's the, here's the premise. It's always easier to talk with someone who's in authority about what we need to do than it is to listen to men that are our peers. And so easy for us to be able to hear from God and say, God, you've commanded something. You're God, I'm not, so I will do it. But if I started to tell you to do things, you know what you should say? And rightly so, what makes you say that I have to do that? Who are you to be the one that tells me what I have to and don't have to do? The commands are not burdensome because they come from God. Number three, these commands aren't burdensome because they are found in the context of love. Understand this, God doesn't give these commands to hurt us. He gives them to help us. He doesn't give these commands to overwhelm us, but to give us a a sense of being overjoyed. And that's why love is a part of it. As parents, I know this to be true, and I'm sure you do as well. It is hard to be a parent. 
as, as fathers and as mothers, it's hard. We, we endure a lot of stuff. We're, we're constantly, especially with, I'll even say with even older kids, there's a lot of money going out for these children. There's a lot of time and energy going into these kids. And it isn't always easy. But here's the thing. It's not burdensome. I don't know the last time I ever thought being a dad was burdensome. It's hard work. But what keeps it from being a burden? My love. I look at my children and I say, you're worth it. If we don't love God, we'll never, ever think that the walk of Christ is not burdensome. But the moment your relationship with God the Father starts to grow lax, I will tell you purity will be an issue. Honesty will be an issue. Idolatry will be an issue because you have forgotten now that a loving father has declared these things and now you start looking at this vengeful God who has given you this list of things to do that go against who you are. Finally, in this point, I want to address the issue of the world. He brings it out in verse 4. For everyone born of God overcomes the world. What does the world mean? We overcome the, 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 the ball, the sphere that we know as earth. No, I like what one commentary says uh, named Bishop Westcott. He says, the world is the sum total of all things around us that make it difficult to obey God. The world is the sum total of all the things around us that make it difficult to obey God. And what John says is we overcome the world. And what that means is when we are born of God and we live in a love relationship with that God, it will be easy to overcome the things of this world. Let me say that again. When you love God, and you're in a progressively growing relationship with that God, it will be easy to say no to the things of this world. I know that because I've seen it in the lives of people. People that are far more mature than I find themselves able to say no to things that I struggle with. And I ask them why, and they say, why would I do such a terrible thing to the God that I love? And so people think that they'll wake up And you think the application of this, I'll just wake up tomorrow and I'll try to be a better Christian. No, please don't take it that way. Take it as if you want to do what is right, if you want to overcome the world, then you fall in love over and over and over again with your Lord and Savior. That's why. The reason why I know I'm divorce-proofing my marriage isn't because I'm trying to be a better husband, but because I dedicate myself to falling more and more in love with my wife. And each day, trying to say, Lord, I want to love her more. I want to do more to know about her and to ask her things and to spend time with her and experience life with her, not so that I'm a better husband, but so that I can love her more. We need to love our Lord and Savior if we want to overcome the world Point number three, I told you they're going to get shorter, and they are. Point number three, uh, other runners. We need to bring out other runners into this. How do we know that we're victorious? We look at those who have gone before us. How do I know that the life of Christ and the life with Christ is a victorious one? I will give you two runners in my life, Bill Bedall, my father, and John Avery, my youth pastor, two men that I have watched run the race before me. We are surrounded by such great cloud of witnesses. And this great cloud of witnesses isn't just the Old Testament saints, but it is those around us. How do I know that the Christian life of faith is victorious? The reason why I know is because on September 17, 1990, my father learned that he lost his firstborn son in a car accident. And when everybody else would lose hope, when everybody else would give up My father stood there over his dead body and praised God. And I will tell you that impacted me in the most impressive way because I said if that's the worst thing this world can throw on my father, he is still standing strong, not because of him, but because he cried out and said, God, your grace is sufficient. Though he slay me, I will worship him. And I sat there, and at 14 years of age, it no longer was my parents' faith that I held on to, but I sat there and said, this guy has the secret, and the secret is Jesus Christ, his God. 
That's where it was at. And then I watched my, during that time, right after that, my freshman year into my senior year, even to now, I watched the life that my youth pastor lives, a man of total dedication and prayer. And I watch him as he raises his children, as he now begins to see them coming into adulthood, now as a young father. And I sit there and say, why do I know that the Christian life is the way to go? Why do I know that God's word is right in training up not only the people of God, but the children of God uh, that we raise up? Because I've watched John Avery. My friends, we need to look at people around us and ask the question, I know that I'm an overcomer. and Maybe I don't feel like it right now. Maybe I don't feel like the champion that God has called that I am. But can I see it in the lives of others? I look forward to one day living up to the faith that John Avery and Bill Bidall have lived out. And I'm so aware of the idea that God who began a good work in me just as He began it in them will see me to the day of completion just as He is seeing them. And so let me give you a list just to remind us very quickly of some. In the book of, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we have a whole litany of them. And I just want to hit on four or five of them. Enoch. Enoch, the Scripture says, gave up his prerogatives. And some of you need to give up your own prerogatives if you want to be the champion that God has called you to be. The Bible says that Enoch walked with God. And what we see in that, not explicitly but implicitly, is because Enoch had a relationship with God, it meant that he couldn't have relationships with other people. What it meant was if he was going to walk with God, he couldn't walk on his own anymore. And some of us, because of our prerogatives, are walking by ourselves, thinking that because of that, we get to make our own decisions. We get to do our own things. And we need to look at Enoch and say the reason why Enoch was righteous, the reason why Enoch uh, uh, walked with God was because he made a conscious decision that he would overcome his own prerogatives to do God's will. And he is commended for that. Noah Noah is talked about in Genesis chapter 6 and, of course, in Hebrews 11. And in Genesis chapter 6, it says that amidst the whole world, that when God looked at the world that he created, he saw that every inclination of man was to do evil. All of them were just evil all the time, pollution all over the place. But Ephesians, I'm sorry, uh, Hebrews, Genesis, let me go right to where I need to be. Genesis chapter 6 tells us that God I'm sorry, that Noah found favor in the eyes of God. Why? Because Noah, amidst all this pollution, stood firm in his faith. And some of you need to overcome the pollution of this world. For 120 years, Noah, I'm sure, endured the the ongoing fighting and, and desire to get Noah to stop building that ark, but he was faithful amidst a world of sin. And some of us need to understand that today. You will not be a champion. And I know you're living in tough times where there's pollution of sin all around you until you say no to that pollution and start obeying God. Abraham. Abraham gave up his position. At 75 years of age, Abraham leaves all that he had and established in the land of Ur, and he goes to a land that's promised to him. He goes and he lives in tents, even though he had a home in Ur, established, in many ways probably wanting to retire. And some of you, especially you who are more mature, have lived your life and have garnered a a secure position in life, and you think it's time to retire. And I don't mean just retire from work, but retire from the spiritual life. And Abraham is a model that God has never done with you. The greatest things that God did didn't really happen in Abraham's life until he was 100 years of age. And God wants you to know that it's not your secure position that you've made for yourself, but by faith coming out of that and living a life as a conqueror, Moses gave up the pleasures of the world. Moses could have had everything in Pharaoh's household in Egypt. He could have had anything that he wanted. But he gave that up, and the pleasures for a season, the Scripture says, so that he could be the leader to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt. Some of us need to give up the pursuit of pleasures to be an overcomer. We need to look at the life of Moses. He wasn't perfect. He was a murderer. He ran from God for a season. He came up with excuses on why he couldn't be used by God, but he was one that knew that the pleasures of this world would never get us what we're looking for. Rahab. Rahab, the great story of Rahab in the, the city of Jericho, she knew that punishment was coming if she would hide the spies. 
And she knew that there was a chance that she would lose family and friends. She knew there was a chance that she would lose her standing. There was a good chance, no doubt, she would have put in prison and probably killed for helping out the spies. And yet she understands and recognizes that it is better to serve God, it is better to be faithful to God and endure the hardship that comes than to endure uh, an easy life without God. And I could go on. There's many others that endure persecution. But for the sake of time, look at those in Hebrews chapter 11. This is what T.S. Eliot says. He says, An overcomer is an instrument of God who has lost his will in the will of God. No, he's not lost it, but he's found it because he has found freedom in the submission of God. Have you lost your will in the will of God? And in doing so, have you found freedom? That is what it means to be an overcomer. Now, for Americans, it's always important to leave forth a reward, and so here is my assignment. There is a reward for overcomers. In Revelation uh, chapter 2 and chapter 3, seven different times, Jesus tells us that we will receive something if we overcome. And I want you to look at those. Each of the churches uh, of Asia Minor that Jesus writes letters to, uh, he says, to him who overcomes, I will give, and then he gives each of them. Just for the sake of time, I'll throw out some of them for you. He will give us a new position. He gives us a new protection. He gives us a new purity. He gives us a new provision. And he gives us a new paradise. Who does he give those to? Overcomers. And so let me close with this. You are a champion, whether you know it or not. If you are born of God, then you will overcome the world. You will obey God's commands, and you will love God and his people. But let me help you with this. Unless you live like a champion, you will never sense and feel that until you get to heaven. And what God wants us to know and understand is you are a champion today as much as you will be tomorrow. You're a champion because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And as a result of that, I can close out this message with the words of a secular song that can be totally attributed to Christians, and they're the following. We are the champions, my friends, and we need to keep on fighting till the end. We are the champions. We are the champions because it's no time for losers because we, Christians, are the champions of the world. Be the champion that God has called you to be. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. And Lord, I pray that it truly has transformed lives. Lord, I know it has impacted the way I look at what you've done for me, how you've changed me, how you allowed me to be born again. And Lord, I pray for those who have never trusted you as their Savior. And today their hearts may be enlightened to this understanding, this thought that they cannot see you, they cannot know you unless they're born again. And Father, I pray that today would be the day that they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ. By the grace that you've allowed yourself to be revealed, they now would turn to you in obedience and trust you. And Father, I pray for those who have already done that, who have trusted you as their Savior, Lord, that they would love you They would love their brothers and sisters. That they would love to do what you've commanded. And that, Lord, they would love knowing that because of you, we are victors. We are more than conquerors because of Christ, your Son, who has redeemed us. Father, I pray as we leave this place, we've worshipped you, and we've come around your table and remembered you, We've studied you and your life and your ministry to us. That, Lord, as we leave this place, whether in our homes or in our traveling to and fro, whether at work or play, that the people around us would see that love, the love for you and the love for them. And as a result of that, that they would know and they would see that we are born of God. And they would sense, not out of arrogance or pride, but a settled feeling that we are more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. To you be the glory. To you be the praise in your church and throughout all this world, now and forevermore. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen.